Welcome to the Maris Review. Thank you for having me. I'm here with Lily Analik today. She is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and her work has also appeared in Harper's, Esquire, and The Believer. And she's the author of Hollywood's Eve, which is out in paperback now. And she lives in New York City with her husband and two small sons. That's me. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Welcome, Lily. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, you kind of started a, a moment in, in in literature today. I know. It's it's like it's so crazy to think back on because it's kind of started for me in 2010 and I was kind of unpublished, very frustrated. It was before I had kids and um I read it's 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 like this weird origin story because in my memory it's so distinct. I was yeah. going through this Joe Esterhaus phase, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Showgirls, you wrote Showgirls. Sure. Showgirls and Basic Instinct and um he was writing these memoirs and I was reading Hollywood Animal. Mm-hmm. I am sure. I'm sure he would start each kind of chapter with a, a quote about LA. And one of the quotes was from a woman named Eve Babbitts. And I just thought the quote was such a knockout, you know, that I, I looked her up and she was kind of out of print and there was basically no information on her personally at that point. I think she had done an interview with the, like the Smithsonian Institute. Sure. She, yeah. Like in 2001, but it wasn't about her. It was about, she took that kind of famous photograph, her first kind of yes. famous act. Yes. In 1963, she was 20, and she took a photograph of um, – she was naked playing chess with Marcel Duchamp. As one does. As one does. Um, and, and you can also see that photo. I, I like how you point yeah. out in the book yeah. that you can Google her, and that could that's like the first image that you'll see still. Maybe. Yeah. No, totally. And then what's really funny is I have that photo hanging in my son's room. <laughs> They're four and Very six. Very nice. I know they're going to, you know, come to terms with sex and everything through Eve. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but like, so I, I was sure, you know, I thought she was kind of great from this quote from Joe Esterhaus, and I kind of tracked down a couple of her books, starting with Slow Days, Fast Company. It was out of print, but I got, you know, like a secondhand right. copy, and I just thought she was, I was sure she was a genius. I thought she was so great, and I tried to find her, and um, she had kind of no social media presence, and right. I couldn't find her anywhere, and then kind of... The last place I looked was the phone book, and there she was. <laughs> she started writing her letters and all that sort of stuff. But it took years. It took years to get her to talk to me. Yeah, that was – I mean, so in this book, you detail how much hard work you put in in, in befriending her and her yeah. family and her associates. Well, yeah. And, and, like, there's this funny thing. So, like, Eve's having this kind of, kind of big moment now. And, you know, people call it a resurgence, but she, she kind of went through her career without ever really getting discovered. Right. I mean, she was published by Knopf, which is a big deal, but, you know, the reviews were pretty dismissive or they ignored her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never really kind of caught on with the reading public. Mm-hmm. And that's happening now. And I always feel like I, I sound like um, a credit, you know, grabber or something, but it's it's more like you had to be unhinged to do what I did. I mean, really, <laughs> like, nobody normal would have gone to these links, you know, chase somebody for three years and... I would write her these letters and I would call her and kind of nothing, no response for years. And then my, I have a younger brother and he was going to USC for business school. Right. And, you know, I, they lived only a few blocks from each other. So I walked. I wanted to I wanted her to know how obsessive I was so there would be no stamp on the last letter. You know, I, <laughs> I hand-delivered it to her house and still nothing. And then I befriended her sister, her ex-lovers, her cousin, um, Julian Wasser, who took that photograph. Right. Um, and then finally she got curious. And she told, I think it was, she told Paul Roche, who was kind of her longest term lover. Yes. She'd also, Paul Roche is the brother, the younger brother of Ed Roche, the famous Hollywood artist who'd been Eve's boyfriend in the 60s. Um, and anyway, she called Paul and said, you know, tell tell her she can take me to lunch. And so I flew to LA the next day. And 
at that point, I'd kind of gotten Vanity Fair interested in, in her. And then it still took another two years for the piece to come out. So it was just like this incredibly long. Which is why. And so you just kept flying back and forth. Yeah, yeah I was. And it was just, it was like, yeah. And it was like, uh, what I mean to say is that like the, the art critic Dave Hickey had kind of tried to do a revival with Eve. And he was an established mm-hmm. writer. And a, right. I love his writing. Um, anyway, but he was established and he was very close with Ed Ruscha and Paul and he knew Evie through them, and he called her one day and said, "You know, what do you think about a revival?" And she told him to go fuck himself. You know, <laughs> and he he was he has manners, so he listened when she when she rejected right. him. He was, you know, accepted that. And you know, Emily Gould had really kind of wanted to republish. Um, yes, with her. Emily books. Yep, exactly. So there were other people who were on to her, but it took somebody who was just, um, you know, really really far gone, you know, to make this happen because, you know, you had to have, I guess, like an appetite for rejection. (laughs) And tell me what made you fall in love with her. God, I know. It's it's like... And not that this is, I mean, this is why you wrote the entire book. So please summarize in two to three sentences. Well, so I... so. Whether I encountered her in Joe Esterhaus or not, because I've I've bought every copy of Hollywood Animal, the European copies, like the paperback, the hardcover. There is no Eve Babbitt's quote in this book. Yet my brother also thinks he saw it there. So I don't know. Maybe there's some imprint that I'm just blanking on I've missed. But, um, you know, I just – I loved the voice. And it was was kind of slangy and American but also kind of erudite and elegant. um, And it just really swung and – I loved how she wrote about Los Angeles, which is this kind of complicated city because it's mm-hmm. this kind of, you know, it's physically beautiful and it's kind of easygoing pleasures like pretty girls, palm trees, right. sun, the movies. Um, but it also has this kind of um, kind of dark and haunted quality. You know, people mm-hmm. go there with big dreams and most of those dreams right. do not come true. So there's a right. real dark quality to Los Angeles. And I thought she kind of captured I, – I thought she captured all of that. And and so she, her life, in her life, she was kind of like a zealot yeah. in terms of being around what was important in the arts and music and film. Yeah. No, no, no. She's on every scene. I, she's also kind of oddly opposite of a zealot because, like, the, you know, her personality um, and sensibility and oddness was very strong. So so she kind mm. of never really blended in. She was she always – Got it. Yeah. I like that. But she always had a nose and a nose or, – or, or she kind of sensed what was hot and was there. Um, and I like to – it's kind of to what you're saying, but I, I like to – you know, I mean, everybody quotes that – it's that like F. Scott Fitzgerald chestnut, there's no second acts in American mm-hmm. life. People always quote it to 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 say how it doesn't actually hold water. And, of course, Evie was that way because, you know, she's – She's, she kind of began her career as a muse. Right. Uh, you know, that famous photograph, um, which she had taken to get back at a boyfriend. She had, a mar- yes. she had two married boyfriends at the time. Her kind of favorite married boyfriend at that time was Walter Hopps. And um, he'd started the Ferris Gallery, which yeah. – Yeah. And every kind of important L.A. artist was going to come out of this gallery. And he had just left left it to take over the Pasadena Art Museum. And he got Duchamp to do his retrospective there, which was this major coup. It was this nothing museum. And kind of through force of his kind of – personality, his powers of persuasion, he got Duchamp to come. And it was going to be this major kind of Hollywood event. Right. And um, his wife was going to be there. Of course she was going to be there. Um, and so he wasn't inviting Eve. He wasn't inviting his teenage mistress to the party. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so angry about this. So this was her way of getting back at him. So, yeah. I love how she I holds grudges. I think uh, that's just, I mean, I know. 
so strong. Yeah, oh, totally. And and always conscious that this was kind of an art act, you know. So so she'll you had to get used to when finally when I I became close with Eve mm-hmm. and we were talking all the time. You had to get used to her language, um, and because she would always refer to herself as a groupie whenever she referred to herself. Whenever she, that was her first kind of word of self description, it would be a groupie. But there was always kind of a tongue in cheek and inside and outside quality mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. And she was a groupie in the sense that she had sex with a lot of famous dudes um, <laughs> and some girls. You know, she got Anna right. Leibovitz in there. Yep. Um, but I always felt that this was kind of her way of kind of exploring her time. Um, it was pushing herself to extremes. And because she, because she was her own source, she was her own material. Yeah. You know, she was always writing about herself. She would she would push her behavior. I mean, kind of exploring degradation, all this kind of stuff. But when you would kind of press on this and you would talk to other people, she was at every party, but 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 the guys who took her would always say, we hated taking Eve to parties because she would get there. She was the first to arrive and the first to leave. She, was, she would get there before it got started and leave before it got good, <laughs> you know, because she wrote in the mornings. Right. So for all the drugs and all the all the guys, you know, there was a very kind of disciplined, kind of solitary, tough-minded quality to her, uh-huh. you know. And I loved how, I mean, you describe in the book how she went to a one particular restaurant and that's where where things yes. happened and how Well, Maris and I were having this conversation before I came in here. Yeah. Um how there used to be scenes, you yeah. know? And uh, Eve was a big believer in scenes, so kind of a first scene for her. So when I was talking about different acts, so she kind of starts out as a muse. She's an right. she's the yeah, the girlfriend of artists, you know. Ed Ruscha, Walter Hopps. Kenny Price. She slept with a, b- a bunch of them. And that was the Barney's Beanery scene. And at that time, she wanted to be a visual artist. Her mother was a visual artist. Right. Um, and that's how she thought of herself. She always thought of herself as an artist, right? So that was kind of one period. And then the scene shifts, um, and music is starting to get very big, and she's starting to hang out at the Troubadour, which is where the Eagles are coming through. She'd already had sex with Jim Morrison, very young Jim Morrison, before he was Jim Morrison. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot of energy there. And at that point, she was kind of an album cover designer. Right. Right, which she did for the birds and um, took photographs of the eagles and Buffalo Springfield. Um, so that was another incarnation and that was another scene for her. And then kind of in her late 20s, she's um, with a guy named Dan Wakefield who was kind of a very big writer at that time. He had a big bestseller, um, kind of a literary bestseller called Going All the Way. And he was an East Coast guy and he was, you know, wrote about Vietnam for the, for the Atlantic and they devoted a whole issue to his thoughts on the Atlantic. You know, he's a big deal and close with the Didians. The Didion Duns. Um, and when she was with him, she started writing secretly. She wasn't telling him what she was up to, but she wrote that kind of first piece on Hollywood High, one right. of her greatest pieces. Yes. Um, but that was kind of her next incarnation. And then then she kind of she called it squalid over boogie, you know, when you're <laughs> too many, too many drugs, too many guys. Her capacity was enormous, but she exhausted even herself. And then she has to kind of clean up her act. So she kind of becomes this cautionary tale. And then there's the fire in 1997 when she drops the match on herself and it's third degree burns over 50% of her body. And she becomes this kind of Hollywood tragedy. And now I think she's kind of in yet another act, and it's this kind of attenuated celebrity, you know, now. Sure. Right? In her 70s, you know, now she's become kind of part of the canon. How do you feel about um, the reaction of fans now? Like, especially mm. there there's so many – all of her books have been reprinted. Yes, everyone. And, and um, I Used to Be Charming, uh, which is her latest heaven. collection from yeah. NYRB, just yep. came out. Oh, NYRB has the best taste. I I love it because I always thought they had great taste and then were completely aligned. 
Eve's Hollywood, Slow Days Fast Company, and then this collection, which has some – I always think Evie is best in um, kind of a compressed form. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, she's a, fa- a failure as a novelist. You know, when she tried to write conventional novels, I think that form just completely um, – um, I want to say emasculated her, but that's a crazy word. But <laughs> somehow it made Evie less Evie. You right. Know, she tried to be more traditional and it just didn't work for her. But when she would invent a form, which she did in Slow Days Fast Company mm-hmm. – um, she was, you know, kind of her genius could flower. And I think in this new collection, they have one of her – she wrote a book on Fiorucci, but it was really kind of an extended magazine piece. Yes. Yeah. And it was the one book of hers that took me the longest to read because you couldn't buy it for less than like $1,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but then one day she like semi-cleaned her very messy apartment or had somebody clean it and they found a copy and she let me borrow it. Um, but that's one of my favorite of her writings and it's in this new collection. Yes. Oh, but her new fans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, God, it's such a wild thing to me because, so, you know, Evie wrote about pleasure. She wrote about drugs. She wrote about men. Right. That was her, that was her thing. And you'd think she, she was writing about this kind of during the height of the counterculture. And so you would have thought that she would have kind of been a major uh, kind of voice of her generation, you know? Right. But she wasn't. And she's catching on now. And now we're in kind of, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to quote, Eddie from Absolutely Fabulous. We're in the kind of the no fun zone. You know, it's like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like pleasure has a bad name. Glamour has a bad name. You'd think um, Evie would be antithetical to these times. Um, but instead, she's she's kind of huge and with young women. Um, and I remember she said this, something very funny to me when I told her how big she was getting, you know, with young women. She said, well, it used to be men who liked me. Now it's girls, um, which is kind of great. But I always feel like I, I always had this kind of theory, you know, um, Joan Didion, who I, I think of as kind of she and Evie seem to me totally complimentary, like yin and yang. Yes. It and super ego. They you you almost need to read both to understand the other, you know? They're mm-hmm. they're kind of perfect perfect and 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 Joan was really such a voice of a generation and I think slouching her novel her she had written a novel before slouching toward Bethlehem right. and it just kind of kind of came and went. People didn't pay attention, but slouching was kind of this cultural touchstone. And it was I think it came out in 67 and which is kind of the height of the free love hippy dippy flower child right. everything's going to be great um moment and she wrote this kind of pessimistic gloomy dark book and it was and it exploded. So I always feel like there's the moment and then there's the mood under the moment. And mm-hmm. when you tap into the mood under the moment, that's when you've really got something. So I I feel like Evie's having that now. Right. You know? That's my that's my it's it's my only way of kind of accounting for this. And I love how in the book you really make a case for Evie's first writings, especially Slow Days. Oh, yeah. Um as being a direct reaction to yeah. play it as it lays. Oh, for sure. Oh my god, for sure. Um, and, and I yeah. think it's so funny, too, that amongst a, a certain group of people, you could say that Joan Didion has a bunch of fangirls oh, yeah. in a way that perhaps she had never intended to. No. I mean, well, what's so interesting about Didion, like, I have problems with her sensibility. But, I mean, she's kind of one of the most influential pro stylists of the 20th century. I mean, she's a big, big deal. But I always found her... Not all of her writing. She's, she, but she's she's varied. But like the big book would be Play It As It Lays. That was the big LA novel, and I always just hated it. You know, I just mm-hmm. hated this book, and I felt it was reductionist. And it, the writing is very sophisticated, but the thinking of it is kind of very adolescent to me. It's LA is Sodom and Gomorrah. LA mm-hmm. is it looks beautiful, but it's really hell. And um, you know, it it was it was not the LA I experienced. And I also felt it was almost like the bad and the beautiful, like. Kind of like a like a dumb Hollywood 
movie about Hollywood. Just simple-minded. That was always my reaction to uh-huh. to even though I think she's a great writer. This isn't, you know, <laughs> this isn't to like dump on her because I think sure. she's, you know, you know, she's major. Um, but then when you read Slow Days Fast Company, which takes this kind of prismatic view of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. like it's Bakersfield, it's Laguna Beach, it goes all over. And it's like it's holding up Los Angeles and looking at it from one angle, then twisting, looking at it from right. another. Yeah. And it and it just gets it. I mean, this kind of sensual, lazy, druggy, kind of super intelligent, but not in an obvious way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just loved it, you know, and I, I just thought it it understood the time for me. And and I love how you've written this biography of Eve in in a voice that is very complimentary to her. Oh gosh, I'm sure. You know, it's like it's funny, like, you know, like the, the I always think like I used to read Pauline Kale, you know, the New Yorker yeah. film critic. And she'd stopped writing by the time I was reading her, but I read her so compulsively during my adolescence and early twenties. I always feel like that's an influence I can't shake. And I came to Evie later. I mean, I would love to kind of write like Eve, but like I'm uptight. Um, <laughs> do you know, like in every way, I'm like kind of not what she is. But um, but I just I love what I love what she does. You know, I love how she, and it, to me it was totally singular. And I can I can actually understand how she got overlooked because at the time when people were writing about her, they were dismissive, and it just seemed kind of like I don't know the writerly. Equivalent of bimboy writing, like right. it was kind of into pleasure and into men and into trouble or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually writing of a very high order. But you actually need to really be paying attention to get it. I mean, like when she does it successfully, like with Slow Days, Fast Company, right? But I can see, like, it doesn't wear its seriousness on its sleeve. And I, I will yeah. disagree with you and say that I it. loved, I yeah. loved Sex and Rage when I oh, read it, God. which was only a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah, at, but yeah. but it's I a great also, title. It's it's a great it's great a beautiful title. package. Yeah, Counterpoint it's a beautiful package. Did did a really great totally. job with that. Um, and I love how your book provides almost like a, a, a key. Oh yeah, it is to 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 sex and rage. It does provide a key. everything was autobiographical. Everything was um, everything was nonfiction. It's so funny because like for me, when Evie writes, the reason for me sex and rage doesn't work when Eve writes about herself in this self-conscious way where she's creating a character of mm-hmm. Evie, I feel like something gets tamped down in her. I don't know how else to, how else to explain it. And it, it, it yeah. is funny that she calls herself in that novel Jacqueline. Oh, of course she does. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, oh, I, Evie. I, <laughs> but I, I love that this is like, you know, we're in a, a phase when people are constantly looking for autofiction and discussing autofiction. Of course. Uh, no, and I mean, it's like in funny ways, like just kind of contemplating Evie's career, it, you know, becomes this meditation, kind of philosophical, aesthetic meditation on on, on kind of ugh, the nature and purpose of fiction and nonfiction. I mean, mm-hmm. they completely blend. This mm-hmm. is not – where does one begin and another end? And I think like, you know, we kind of came into contact when I was doing something um, – um, for Esquire and Bennington. Yes. And, you know, you'd find out, like, s- secret history, which seems like the most outlandish plot, how much of this crazy and extreme behavior was actually drawn from life. I mean, you can't – it's just impossible to separate these things. Even just the glasses, the circular glasses. Oh, my God. It has... gets worse and worse. Like, it's so funny because I see the guy who um, – Matt Jacobson, who was based on – who she took money from, and everything he says, like – like to, to like bizarre degrees. Like he'll show me cartoons he drew when he was on a trip with the the Henry character Todd, and it's right out of the book. Anyway, it's wow. what it, my my point being like you can't you can't tell where one begins and one ends. You know, right? 
And then, of course, there's overlap uh, between those those two areas with with Brett Easton Ellis bringing them together. Of course. And so he blurbed. She blurbed. Oh, she blurbed. Right. She blurbed less than zero. And it was so funny because I saw a letter, you know, that Brett had written when he was, I think, a junior in college. And he just, the book had just gotten bought. And he was talking about the blurbs. And he goes, I got this crazy one that says, this is the second coming of Jim Morrison. Mothers, this is, er, readers, this is the book your mother warned you about. It's just so funny (laughs) to see it like in 1984 or whatever it was. But yeah, that was Eve's quote. And they met at Ports, that restaurant you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. And and just you have so many other examples of just how she was influential in ways that we don't even think about now. Like oh, crazy! I know. Like someone told you that she suggested to Steve Martin to white suit <laughs> to white suit. She did. She suggested. Yeah, and she had she liked this. Um, I'm gonna. I'm so bad with French. I'm an American, so I massacre French. But Henri Lartigue, the the French f- photographer, mm-hmm. well, she was crazy for him, and all his people were white. And so she told him to wear white. Um, and she said, people think it makes your skin look bad, but actually, you know, makes your skin look great and do it. And he did it. And and it was so funny fact-checking that because this was before Evie was a thing, you know? Right. Like, everything was out of print. You know, people – some people – people were of two minds. People either like, oh, great, Evie deserves recognition. Thank God someone's going to do this. Or they're like, you know, that bimbo. I mean, seriously, right. I would get those two reactions. And Steve Martin was not at all like that. But I remember having to call him and I was a brand-new journalist. I was – writing this for Vanity Fair. I didn't know how to do anything and just being like, well, Steve, could 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 that have happened? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, it did. She put me in the white suit. But, you know, it was like chasing the stuff and like the crazy stuff about her putting, God, Jim Morrison into leather pants, which becomes right. the look of rock and roll yeah. that defines the look of rock and roll. And Elvis would later do it. Punk and everything. everything. And it was between her and her sister. And, you know, she was, she was, it was the one year she was living in New York. She was hanging out with Andy Warhol. She ran into Jim in the, in the village. They'd already, they'd been lovers. He wasn't famous when they got together. But she said they, we kind of fell into each other's arms, strangers in a strange land. She took him to see and, um, Andy Warhol that night. Um, Andy Warhol's right-hand man was Gerard Malanga. Gerard was wearing the leather pants, you know, and then he he had a friend of his design them, and he didn't like the way the friend designed them because he couldn't move well. And then her sister Mirandy had a leather shop on Sunset Boulevard, and Jim went in, and Mirandy put him in those leather pants, and they're now hanging in the Hard Rock Cafe in Hollywood. Of course. Of course, right? <laughs> What's your relationship with Eve and Mirandy and you know, everyone else in her world like now? <laughs> Mirandy and I – talked yesterday. We text Aww. every day. We text every day. You know, we're totally really tight. And I'm also really close with Lori Pepper, who's mm-hmm. Eve's cousin. And I'd, I, I'd been aware of Lori, not through Eve. Um, Lori was married to this kind of famous West Coast junkie jazz musician, Art Pepper. And he had written a book called Straight Life, like published in 79 or 80. And my dad had a copy and for whatever reason, it was the book I read every night when I was nine. It had tons wow. of – I know. And I hid it under my bed because it had all this drugs and sex in it. <laughs> anyway, Lori was great too, but Lori and I are very tight. I'm really tight with Paul. I'm seeing him. I'm going out to LA right. next week. Um, and Evie, I always always check in on. I send her presents. You know, right. I send her presents and we talk on the phone. But Evie's just not – Evie's not, just not in great shape, you know? Right. So I ended up – there was the, when I first kind of got into this, she was in much better. Sh- I mean, she wasn't in good shape when I got into this when I started, mm-hmm. but um, she was in much better shape then. Oh, that's that's sad. Um, 
She's and, actually kind of happy. I mean, I think she's okay, getting the attention. She's she a, is. I mean, I think right, she's like, okay, okay. you know, and she just wants shit. She wants me to send her. It's like a, I always say like – and it was always our dynamic. I was like a, like a, like a lovelorn suitor and she was like my difficult mistress, you know, because I'm always <laughs> buying her stuff and trying to make her happy. Yes. In the book, you send her chocolate-covered strawberries. Oh, my God. Always. Always. That's like a, that's a staple in whatever book she wants and to read. And that does seem like something you'd send a lover. Oh, it for sure. And like she'll have me send her clothes. Like there was a period I was sending her, you know, kind of these leopard print vans she wanted. And then there was a period where she wanted moccasins from this very particular Native American reservation. Very expensive. She wants these Joseph Needham books, like these books that got published in like the 1900s. They are so expensive. It's seven <laughs> volumes. And I'm like, Eve, they're all like 200 bucks. That's amazing. Tell me a little – so in, in the book – you mention in real parenthetical kind of ways yeah. that um, Evie had a change in politics in, she did. In, in the early 2000s. Well, it was always tricky writing about this. And actually kind of the one time – well, <clears throat> I'd written the first – it wasn't a first draft of the book. It was well along. But it was the book that kind of first went into that kind of galley form, mm-hmm. like not – not the real galley, but the first kind of, and it, you know, and found I found manuscript kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I remember kind of showing it around to people whose taste I trusted. And I'm friends with Blake Bailey. Um, yeah, it was kind of a big deal biographer. He's doing the official Philip Roth one right now, mm-hmm. and he just reamed me. And he reamed me, and he said, "In the present day, you go way too soft. You kind of smear ones on the Vaseline." You know, it's a dishonest job. And I kind of had this like sick feeling in my stomach because I knew he was right. And I kind of spent the next, you know, four or five months rewriting those sections. And I knew it was going to be very upsetting to Mirandi, her sister. I knew. I knew it was. But it's like to me, like part of Evie's greatness, uh, you know, she was always an original, always an artist and always odd and always – Kind of, kind of tough-minded and singular and strange, and went her own way. And what's going on with her politics now is kind of part and parcel of that. And same, same as it's like she was kind of this symbol of kind of beauty and sexuality and kind of ease and pleasure. And then that's not the case now, right? It's kind of a very stark, right. a stark contrast. But what I guess what I'm trying to say to this, it was all connected to me. Like I, I remember Caitlin Flanagan. We were just having a conversation and she just said, well, was it upsetting or disappointing to you when Eve was this way and her politics were this way? And I said, no, you know, because had Evie just been kind of a middle class, settled into kind of bourgeois life, right? you know, had stopped raging, I think that would have been much harder for me to take. And look, I don't know how seriously to take the politics because all of this is post-fire. Right. Do, do you know what I'm saying? And post the kind of in, in extreme isolation. So in 1997, she had this terrible, terrible Terrible ex. fire. And suffered third degree burns over fifty percent of her body. It was a fifty fifty chance of survival. It was really horrendous. I mean, you can read about it, and I used to be charming, but she was just an insane physical agony, and she never complains. You know, like I was saying, like our relationship got much tighter over the telephone. I would always see her. I would come to see her every six weeks to take her out because she loves to eat. Mm-hmm. I would take her out. Um, but she couldn't last long, and the lunches were so awkward because she could basically last fifteen minutes. She'd shove the food in and want to go. And at first I just thought, you know, we just weren't getting along. I didn't know quite what it was, but really – because she never complains. But later I would find out from her sister, the burns, they didn't heal. You know, so she can't – she basically is only kind of comfortable kind of reclining or walking, you know. So she's really in kind of severe agony. And look, her whole life she'd been apolitical but liberal, you know, and she came from a kind of a a very lefty house. Right. And and I guess that's – as as someone who has been a casual fan who yeah. um was introduced to her work from these from the reissues sure. mostly 
Um, certainly her her upbringing and yeah. her love of art and all of that kind of stuff um, makes it more jarring when you see on Facebook that she's a women for Trump Right, fan. no, and it is. And it's like I don't ever know how, how much weight or how much not weight. I mean I ended up putting all of that in the book because I felt that that was just the honest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Even though Rindy wanted to kill me, she got over it. But like I felt that that was the honest – That's that is what it is like with her in the present day. But – like up to like there's a up to like 1999s there's some it was either in an interview or something some reference where she said they asked her what she looked for in a man and she said and not a republican so you knew like and <laughs> so she was something in something happened yeah, yeah and she was in her mid 50s when this fire happened so it's like her whole life she'd been one way mm-hmm. and then you know she started to listen her dad was a, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn right. and she started to listen she couldn't have a TV in her house because she kept ordering stuff off home shopping network <laughs> yes. right so they got rid of the TV so she's re- the poor woman's reduced to radio and she started to listen to right wing radio because Dennis Prager had a voice like her dad's you know she was crazy mm. for her dad it was kind of a New York – Wow. Right. And then that's sort of how it started. And Evie always gets super enthusiastic about things. But it was always charming and weird with her. Like, yes, she's for Trump, but she'll say funny things. Like when she wanted me to buy her more more stuff, she's like, get me a, a, bl- a blouse. I'm like, well, what color? And she's like, the blue of Melania Trump's eyes. You know, it was always weird. It was never wow. like – You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, So there is that going on now. To to go back to can I say one more thing about yeah, that yeah I also I also always felt I mean Evie's very complicated um, and not she's an indir- indirect you know she 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 proceeds by indirection and I felt like you know all the way up to the fire she was in her mid fifties so not a kid but there were lots of lovers you know she's just been with Warren Zevon. She was always seeing so many men you know that was always a big part of her life and she would dance right. every night and do the tango stuff and. Um, because she, she saw Dirty Dancing and fell in love it. with it. That's so awesome. I love so that. great. Right. I know. And when she'd say great things to me, like when I'd ask her why she – because she could have met Patrick Swayze in two seconds because Fred Roos cast Patrick Swayze in The Outsiders. So they were close and she could have met him. And she said, no, I didn't want to meet him. And she said, you know, he'd probably want to talk about, you know, weird actor dietary restrictions about how he didn't eat yogurt. And I, it would ruin the fantasy. <laughs> um, at the end of your book, you admit that – there's a problem about writing on a subject with whom you are enamored. Right. And, and that you sentimentalized her. I felt – see, here's what. I did that when I did the Vanity Fair profile. Mm. I did that when I did – I did not do that with the book. Um, I always felt – you know, I think I say this in the beginning when I'm describing the book. I think it's right in the reader's note and I'm saying this is kind of non-traditional biography and right. it's kind of – Sociological study, cultural history, it's a detective story, it's and I say it's a love story. And I think that I think that made it sound as if well, I guess I it's at some level it's a rhetorical ruse. I mean it is a love story. I'm coming at this from a certain point of view, but I always feel like it was kind of a clear-eyed love. You know, like we're just talking about Sex and Rage, which you liked. I mean, I was very tough on that book. I was very t- tough on LA Woman. I guess I feel like love is necessary to do this kind of book because um, you need that kind of empathy to um, kind of identify and understand your subject. It, it also, I guess I also feel like I also feel like another thing I was kind of straightforward about that could could be problematic for some readers was that this is a subjective biography. Like, right. I guess any yeah, because like any biography <laughs> yes. in 2019 that does that that wants to pretend to be objective, I, I don't trust. Right? Do, do you know like 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 there there's a a life is chaotic. It's full of facts, right? And some mm-hmm. of them are contradictory. And kind of a biographical 
enterprise or the traditional biographical enterprise is to um, kind of find the through line and tell this kind of vivid and coherent narrative of this life. And it's like, that doesn't actually, that's not actually how this works, right? I'm picking things. And so like, for example, like when I did, one of the things that I I did in the Vanity Fair profile was this letter, this mash note she wrote to Joseph Heller in her late teens, right? And so in that, when I was writing it for Vanity Fair, I'm saying, you know, it said, so Evie had written her first book when she was a teenager. Um, This was in like the early 60s. Joseph Heller was this kind of newly minted literary icon. He had just written um, Catch-22 and she wrote him this note. She'd written this book called Traveled Broadens, which is supposed (laughs) to be like Daisy Miller in reverse. Like she'd gone to Europe with her family. And this was supposed to be instead of like the American innocent getting corrupted by Europe, this was the American corrupting, you know, freaking out Europe with her, with her, yeah, with her sexed out ways. Anyway, she she wrote him a note and it said, you know, dear Joseph Heller, I'm a stacked 18-year-old blonde. I am also a writer, Eve Babbitts. Well, the reason I'd found out about the book about this note, Evie didn't tell me. It was a woman named Nan Blitman. And when Evie was in one of her coke rages, she'd fired Erica Spellman, who'd been her agent. She was often they were off and on, you know. And during an off period, she was with Nan Blitman. And she knew Nan through um Annie Leibowitz, who was one of Eve's girlfriends. And um, Nan was a lawyer in Hollywood, and so she represented Eve for a while, and they were friends. And she told me that, you know, oh, Eve had such a crazy – we all knew about her crazy kind of really super interesting family, The you know, the father who did the, the violin fingering for Stravinsky and her wonderful mother. And she said – and Evie had told me that she wrote a note to Joseph Heller, and she said – and what it said was, um, dear Joseph Heller um, – you know, I'm a teenage, I'm a teen, I'm a teenager in Hollywood, and I'm sitting on a bench on Sunset Boulevard in a wet bathing suit. Right. So anyway, I go to Evie and I ask her about this note, and she gives me the version I first gave you, stacked Hollywood blonde. <laughs> then I read back to her what Nan had said, and she goes, "Yeah, that could that could be it." So the point being, like, I'm kind of admitting the facts are unsure. Right. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it seems only worthy of your subject who totally. a life where not every detail has to be. Yeah. Not every detail. And like the story of like her taking that photo with Duchamp, she has told that story to me at least 50 ways. She's written about it 50 ways. I mm-hmm. hear Julian Wasser's version of that story. I hear Mirandi's, her sister Mirandi's mm-hmm. version. You know, you're picking and choosing all sure. the time, right? Absolutely. So you're pretending you're on solid ground, but it's always quicksand. And I I felt like I was just acknowledging it was quicksand. Indeed. <laughs> let's let's switch over and, right. and tell me tell me what else you're reading these days. Oh well, I've got to tell you to read. I used to be charming. Eve's new book, of course. Um, it's it's got some of her it's got some of her absolute best writing. It's the Fiorucci piece. It's um, oh, she writes about Jim Morrison in this. Oh my God, I, I had avoided this piece forever. She wrote about. Jim Morrison for Esquire. She wrote it when the Oliver Stone movie was getting released. <laughs> and I was always so freaked out that she was going to think he was some genius poet. Right. But she has this very kind of complicated and nuanced reaction to him. It's really great. Like she kind of venerated him as a love object but thought he was kind of goofy as a poet. But then also winds up thinking he's kind of a fake but he's a real fake and she loves him anyway. It's just it's just, it's totally wonderful. So you got to read that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Julie. Oh my God. This was Thank a pleasure. You. So much fun. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.